Me, 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 but also you. <laughs> the Pharaoh fast-forwards his favorite foreign film. Powder donut. <clears throat> okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Oh, man, that's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry, I'm going to need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus, the Bulbous Walrus. The Name Your Price tool, only from Progressive. The owl ran afoul of the comatose Coxswain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates price and coverage match limited by state law. This is Julianne Condia, host of Rewritten. Thank you so much for listening to the following broadcast on Public House Media. Disarming Disability. Welcome back to Disarming Disability. My name is Nicole Kelly. And my name is Sarah Tepperty, and we are your hosts of this really cool podcast. We're so excited to have you with us. Um, we're recording here on a weekend, and I was just hearing rumors about Sarah having a wild, cool weekend and was hoping she would share with you. Sarah, what have you been up to? Um, I'm excited. I'm back in um, Philadelphia now, which is just such a treat to be home. And I think really just recognizing and appreciating what home is and what home means. Um, so we had a party last night. Um, I'm living with a really good friend of mine uh, and his mom is um, she grew up in the Philippines and uh, she makes so much food. So she threw a party yesterday and it just was like constant food was being had all of the time there's just like I mean, she would make something and then bring it out on the table and then we'd eat it and then something else would just like magically appear and we would eat it and so it just was so amazing to have all this really great food um so we loved that and um i am i'm dating somebody uh this is he's a big deal i'm really excited um his name is eric so he's my partner and um we've been dating since uh january like kind of the end of january and something that Eric loves, um, in addition to all of the fun things that he does, um, but his his big hobby is music. So yesterday um, at our party, we met up with um, two of my really good friends, Sabrina and her husband, Matt. And um, then they're like, well, we got our instruments. Let's, let's just start jamming. So Eric is on the bass and Matt's on the drums and Sabrina and I are just sort of singing and it's, you know, two o'clock in the morning and we're just playing tool. And it was just so much fun and just really um, how much my heart needs those moments and, and how just happy I am being surrounded by music. I, of course, like I like need to go to singing lessons for a, a, a good chunk of my time and energy to be um, uh singable maybe I don't know something to work on for me um but it just is really cool because the fun thing is um I met Sabrina Matt and um my partner Eric all on the same day it, back in 2013 so Sabrina and and I were sitting in rotation at the airport we just hang out for four hours and if you get called then you go on a flight if you don't get called then you just go home so we sat there from 8 a.m to noon and um, she, we didn't get used that day. And I was talking about like just moving to Philly and, and I really liked science. And she's like, well, I don't have my kid today. Do you just want to go see my husband? He's um, working at the Natural Academy of Sciences in downtown Philly. Like, do you just want to go? And I said, yes. And then he gave us this private tour um, and we got to see like woolly mammoth teeth that like Lewis and Clark collected and like gave to Thomas Jefferson. I don't even know if they're around at the same time. I believe that's what the story is. But I saw these like awesome woolly mammoth teeth and 
And and every time Sabrina goes into the city, because um, she was living um, in suburbs outside of the city, every time she goes in, she calls up her friend Eric, um, who she's known since, um, I mean, all of her high school friends then became Eric's roommates. Um, so then that's how she knows Eric. And Eric is just like a solid, amazing person. So she called him up. And then, you know, I'm on this tour with like Matt and Sabrina. And we're like turning around this corner and like up these stairs walks Eric. And it just was really fun. I was like, oh, he's super cute. And I like him. And we became friends. It just, wait. Um, but we didn't start dating until now, which is awesome. So um, it just was really fun to be like, yeah, I met all of you guys on the same day. Eric had thought that Sabrina and I had been friends for a while. Same with Matt. He's like, why would Sabrina show up with this girl she just met that morning? But I was just like, I need friends and people and Sabrina's awesome. So it um, sounds like such a Sarah thing. Like you are someone who can like walk into a room and just be like, and we are best friends now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, it's a great talent to have. <laughs> It is. So it just was this really magical moment last night, just sort of like honoring our friendship and, and that we've all like been friends for six years and, and just honoring that we all met on that day randomly. And, and Sabrina has been just so foundational to my life. Um, and, and, you know, now she has two little girls and, and, and sort of how much our lives have changed, but this core of it hasn't and, and just really appreciating and honoring that. And I'm just so grateful for all of them. They're all just like such great, fantastic people. And then we just jammed and played Tool as a way to do that. I so love it. There's a lot of Tool that is listened to at my house as well. Big, big Tool fans, lots of metal. Um, actually, Sarah, my favorite concert that I've ever gone to is, oh man, time is weird. I, I think it was last year. Um, last year we went with a bunch of our friends to a big ghost concert. And so we are jamming to ghost all the time around here. We're big fans. Um, so I feel, I feel the affinity for how much fun that would be to just like sit and jam and chill and just hang and be with one another. And, um, yeah, what special, what special people surround you? I love that you have a good core group of people there that really like know you and know your heart. You know, that's so good. I'm so glad. Me too. What have you been up to this weekend? Oh, well, I actually, um, I got to do kind of a fun full circle thing this weekend. Um, in high school, I'm sure you'll be surprised to hear that I was involved in like all the drama and on stage, not, not high school drama, but like the drama club, you know, like all the nerdy on stage speech and debate type things I was in the middle of. And uh, one of the things that's really popular in Iowa is the Iowa Thespian Festival. And so you get together with all the other Iowa schools from around the country in November. And it's a big festival where you get to watch other schools do plays and you get to meet other kids who are really into drama as well. And um, and I got to actually they did a leadership day this past weekend and invited me to teach some sessions, which was so fun. So I got to come back and be like the cool older kid who now, you know, because I'm working at a fabrication company that does theater sets in and museum work, you know, I'm still within that world. And I've worked, you know, at, in different professional spaces and interned in different professional theater spaces. So I got to be like the cool older sister who came back um, to talk to the high school kids and it's really special and it was a really special community for me in high school so it was just a really kind of fun full circle I got to come in and be big sister and talk to these kids and share with them and um, it was a great time it was really fun I wish it could have been of course in person but we're living in a virtual world so it was over zoom that we did it Um, 
but I don't know. It was it was really kind of a fun walk down memory lane and and also fun to like talk to the next generation and see what's on their heart and that they're still excited about theater and theater like things. So it was good. It was really good. That's so fun. Oh, such happy hearts. I love it. I love it. Great. Should we talk about sex now? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, cool. If you've been following along with us, you know that this now is the third episode in our chapter all about sex. So we've talked about it from a sociologist perspective. We talked about it from a um, psychologist perspective. And now this week, we're going to talk about really concrete ways to move into spaces and really educate around sex. Um, so of course, we have an amazing guest because Disarming Disability is so lucky to have the coolest people ever come be our guests. Um, so let's hop right in and let's uh, hear about our guest and let's hop into the interview. Catherine McLaughlin is the founder, CEO, and lead trainer for Elevatus Training. As a national expert on sexuality, she trains professionals, parents, and individuals to become sexual self-advocates and peer sexual educators. She's the author of Sexuality Education for People with Developmental Disabilities Curriculum. She has developed two online courses and a three-day certification training. She has spent the past 25 years of her career committed to elevating the status of all people, which is why she has named her growing company Elevatus Training. Check out Disarming Disabilities website to find out more about Catherine. We're so glad to have you here. Can you please tell us a little bit about your professional journey? How did you get where you are today? And specifically, how did you become interested in sexual trainings? Yeah. So I started working right out of college for Planned Parenthood of Northern New England in New Hampshire. And um, I'd always wanted to work for a place like Planned Parenthood. I liked the 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 mission of the organization and the feel of the organization. And so I started, started working in the health center there at Planned Parenthood. And then I became an educator and trainer. So that's sort of the, the beginning in my 20s. And I ended up working there for 22 years um, and loved just about every minute of it. Uh, but I also... Early on, when I was an educator, I had an accident and, and, and have a spinal cord injury. So I started using a wheelchair early in my, you know, I was 26. So um, all of a sudden, people were treating me differently, even though I was the exact same person, right? So if someone, I think, born with a disability, you have that experience the whole your whole life where I was able-bodied and then became disabled. So all of a sudden, you know... I was like this different person. And so I think personally, I started wondering like, well, what about sexuality and disability? And, you know, some experiences that I've had when I was in the rehab for my injury and things like that. Um, so I started to become sort of personally interested. And then at the same time, a lot of special educators were reaching out um, to work specifically with people with developmental disabilities. So I started that work and I I wasn't afraid of that work. It was, I was really interested in that work. Um, and there wasn't a curriculum, a sexuality education curriculum. There were a few out there when I first did this work, but I thought, okay, I want to start. Um, I need to 
create a curriculum. There isn't anything. And a lot of people want to be able to teach these classes. Um, so I started as an educator. This is sort of, you know, my aha moment. I was like, okay, I'm the educator. I'm going to create the curriculum. I'm going to teach the curriculum. Um, and I started working with Green Mountain Self-Advocates. So it's a group of people with yes. developmental disabilities. And they were like, no, we want to be a uh, part of writing the curriculum. And we also want to be one of the teachers of the curriculum. And I was like, yes, of course you do, you know? Um, so that was a good, you know, I don't know everything. Um, <laughs> so I, I started working with them and the curriculum is designed to be team taught between someone with a developmental disability and a professional. Um, so you know, sort of just different things come along in your life, right? And that's where my professional journey kind of has gone. Um, and one big piece of the curriculum is um, sexual self-advocacy. So how, to, how do you advocate for yourself to be, be in a relationship, to have privacy, to ask for sexuality education? Uh, also, in a relationship, how do you advocate for yourself? as well. So that, that whole theme is threaded through the curriculum as well. Um, so that's kind of the, and, and I did, did do lots of trainings and things. And then three years ago started this particular business, Elevatus Training. I've been doing this on the side. I've had other jobs and I would do trainings and sell the curriculum and things like that. And teamed up with um, a friend who's a business coach and she, you know, really helped me get some structure and how can you run a business um, around your passion. And so I've been doing that for, I think, almost three years uh, full time. So I'd be able, I've been able to make a career out of it. That's amazing and so awesome and so much needed. That's incredible. Can you speak um, a little bit on what it was like working with um, the self-advocates um, and sort of maybe what were some things that you were finding in your training that when you were building the curriculum initially that then you maybe didn't think of or, or what are some things that they really brought to the table that you're like, okay, yes, like these are components that are really essential to be built into our program? Yeah. Um, well, the first question I asked was, why do you want and need sexuality education? And, mm -hmm. you know, they had a bunch of responses to that. So I think that helped guide like what, what was important to them. I think part of it is that sexual self-advocacy mm -hmm. that um, self-advocates say that it's harder to be a sexual self-advocate than a regular self-advocate. That when they ask to get a, a job or live on their own, people go, okay, great. Yeah. What do you need to, you know, what, let's write down your goal. Let's figure out the steps to getting there. But when they say, I want to start dating or I want to have privacy in my room, they get this sort of awkwardness. And um, so I think that definitely came up as an important uh, concept and that they also have to advocate for the right where most people, the assumption is that you would be in some kind of a relationship as you grow up. Right. I mean, maybe not everybody, but people with disabilities, the assumption is that they won't. Um, and so sexual self-advocacy is saying, I want this. Um, even if I have a developmental disability, this is something that I want in my life. Um, so I think that's a piece that was um, nothing I had used with the general population before. I love that. And I love that you are bringing in specifically a toolbox, an, an educational toolbox 
saying, um, here are concrete steps that that you can talk that we can talk about, you can talk about, we all can talk about, and ways to talk about it and ways to practice. Um, when you when you are first encountering a group where you're bringing them this toolbox, what usually are the stigmas specifically um, specifically associated with intellectual disabilities that you're going up against? Yeah. I mean, I think that number one is that they're not sexual, that they don't have any desire or dreams or, and so they don't need this information. So oftentimes I will be working with 50 year olds with developmental disabilities that don't know how babies are made. Right. I mean, just basic information. Um, Self-advocates have told me that they were in the mainstream health class um, learning about nutrition and physical activity. And when the sexuality unit started, they were removed from the class. Right. So, I mean, right. I mean, who knows what? why exactly. I know. And I, you know, I'm like, wow, this was maybe 10 years ago. This person told me this, you know, it wasn't the 1930s that we're talking about. So they were actually removed, which is this message of you don't need this. This isn't for you. Um, and so I think that's really the hard piece is having people realize that everyone is a sexual being from birth to death. And it does sexual being doesn't mean you're having sex. It means that you have a sexuality. And um, so I think that's the biggest is that certain people are sexual, not people with disabilities. Um, and I think as a culture, we, you know, we're not good at that anyway. We have a pretty narrow box of who we consider is a sexual being. Um, so lots of people get that feeling of being left out of the, the picture of who is a sexual being. So, um, yeah. So I think that's it. Also th thinking of them as children too. So, um, they, you know, and I'm always saying that you want to base it on the biological age of the person. So if it's a 21 year old with a developmental disability and a 21 year old without, they need the same topics. Um, how you teach might be a little bit different based on somebody's cognitive ability, but not what you teach. Um, because biology happens and feelings happen, all those things. So um, they need the exact same topics mm -hmm. where a lot of people might look at it and say, oh, well, their cognitive ability is like a five-year-old. So we're just going to teach this 30-year-old what five-year-olds need which doesn't work, right? Mm -hmm. So I think those two, sort of thinking of them as children and not as sexual beings. Right. That when we're talking about the um, sort of like it's not the 30s anymore and sort of not having access to sexual education uh, or, or just health education. I mean, that's, that's, these are health topics. Um, it, it reminded me of um, when I was in my disability studies uh, through occupational therapy, that that's when I first learned that like eugenics were happening and sort of that, that, that disability, that in, um, intellectual disabilities and developmental mm -hmm. disabilities was a particularly um, group that were being forced into um, sterilization. So just sort of that that's a history that we come from that's happened within the past 100 years um, and how so much of that stigma still exists. It's significantly better than that, um, right. thankfully, but there that's still like where roots of the stigma come from. Because sometimes I'm like, it is 2020. <laughs> we should <laughs> be over these things. <laughs> right, right. Uh, no, but we're not. Right. And, yeah. yeah. 
it's sort of like it might not be to the same degree as forced sterilization, but it's still there in some ways, right? As sort of discriminating against people, saying they can't make their own choices. And um, another topic that um, I was thinking about too, when we were talking about what are some different topics, you know, one of the pieces is just body autonomy and knowing that your body is your own because many people with developmental disabilities are really taught to do what they're told. And, you know, and so there's a, you know, the self-advocacy movement is all about speaking up and you getting to decide what you want in your life. Uh, but there's so, I, when I'm working with people with developmental disabilities and I say, it's your body, you get to decide what's right for you. And then I might put, give a little pressure or something. They give in, they comply to me. And I say, no, no, it's your body. Like I'm, I do this name tag game where they, can put their name tag on the left side or the right side. And then I say, well, I'm the teacher. I think you need to move it. And they start to move it rather than, no, it's my body. I get to decide what's right for me. I mean, that's good for all of us, right? Um, so that's a big piece is really helping, helping people learn how to say no to authority and, and to say no to anyone. Yes, all of that makes so much sense. And and yeah, relating it back to, I feel like my experience with my disability, it has been taking steps to learn how to do that in situations where, big or small, where I am being told or directed um, in a way that people think perhaps is best for me. And then learning to speak up can be, um, it can be hard, but it certainly is helpful, again, when you're given this this toolbox and you're given the chance to, to practice, practice the situations out loud. Um, I feel like Sarah and I talk about that a lot, as much as you can set up children to, to know, okay, you're going to be in situations where, um, you know, people, people are going to come up and do the, you know, Oh, bless you. You're so extra special and, and God anointed you and all of these different things. Let's pray for your healing that you'll grow another hand back, right? That's a situation that Sarah and I specifically encounter. And I'm sure you have in your personal life as well have encountered that. So the more that you can spe- specify specific situations, you know, you're going to be in, you can give them that tool belt. So when it's happening, you can say, oh, wait, I, I have practiced this. I know that this thought process maybe isn't correct, even if that person thinks that it is. And here is my appropriate response to that, um, maybe to educate them or to advocate for myself or both. Um, right. It does seem like that. I mean, you're just making me think of, you know, just whether whatever disability it is when or any difference um, when people make assumptions about you and push things onto you, how do you not have that get in? You know, how do you sort of protect yourself from people's thoughts and beliefs? And um, yeah, not easy. It's not easy. And I feel like the more that I've been able to identify them and isolate them, I feel like that helps me not only kind of compartmentalize them, but then again, be ready when, when that time comes and you know, and which is why I love so much what you are doing is you are bringing that toolbox into spaces for both educators and for those who need to advocate for themselves, um, which I think is amazing. Uh, so yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about your business? We're a group of, Sarah and I are a group of, of 
teachers today and we have now hired your services to come in. What can, what can we expect um, if we're sitting down with you either online or, or in person? Yeah. You know, I do different trainings, but in general, uh, one particular training that I'm doing now is a three-day training, and lots of teachers will come to that. Um, and so what they're going to get are three, they're going to be able to work with three different populations. They're going to be able to teach people with developmental disabilities about sexuality. They're going to be able to lead staff trainings as well on how do you talk about sexuality one-on-one -on -one with someone with a disability. And then all, the, the third one is how do you lead parent workshops? for parents on how do you talk to your own children. So sort of three ways of getting the, the information to people with disabilities. Um, so they'll learn that, they'll, they get a curriculum. They, uh, so you as teachers, you would get all the skills to being a good sexuality educator. You'd learn about things like how to um, figure out what your values are around sexuality and how do you set those aside so you're not imposing them on someone else, like one of your students. Um, so that's something you would learn as a professional. As a parent, I do more, I do very similar skills, but I do say as a parent, you can share your values. That's your job as a parent to share your values. Uh, professionals really have to learn how to not share their values. And since we are, we're in a culture that doesn't really talk about sexuality much, people often rely on their values as a way to teach. So they say, oh, don't do that, just from their values rather than, well, what do you think about that? And, you know, sort of how do you reflect it back to other people to figure out what they believe and what they think rather than imposing your values. So uh, the sexuality education is fact-based, mm -hmm. not value-based. Mm -hmm. So we facts. Um, and we just have to be careful because sometimes we think something is a fact when it's actually a value. So someone might say, oh, when two people love each other, they have sexual intercourse and make a baby, right? Well, part of that is true. Not a, You don't always love each other, right? I mean, that's a value that you're versus like a fact, which is um, sometimes people don't love each other and have intercourse and have babies, right? I mean, that's true. Um, so you have to always say, is this true? Is this a fact or is this just my, or is this my value? And I think that's hard for people to do. So that's a, a helpful tool. And then I give lots of tools on how do you answer questions, different models you can use that help you kind of answer questions, you know, especially if you're uncomfortable with something, you know, how do you, if someone asks you a question, you know, there's a five-step process that you go through and it helps you kind of do a needs assessment and figure out what they know and what the question really is. And then you can answer it simply. And so tools like that as well for teachers, as well as, you know, how do you create an environment in the classroom where people can speak up and ask questions and be who they are and not be worried or scared as well. Another piece with, um, teaching people with developmental disabilities is there's a very high rate of sexual abuse among this population. Um, I don't know if you heard the national public radio series on people with developmental disabilities and sexual abuse. And really there's, you know, they looked at national crime statistics and it looks like people with develop, developmental disabilities are seven times more likely than someone without a disability to um, sexually abused and uh, women with disabilities are 12 times more likely. So that's a big piece of, um, you know, 
just how do we prevent that and how do we give people so you might have someone in your class that has gone through some kind of trauma sexual trauma and so how can you make your classroom safe but also um how to be trauma informed as well which is another piece of the the work that I do. So how do you make sure people know the topics that are coming up? Um, make sure you warn, you know, let people know that you're going to take a picture out of a, you know, a body part, sexual part or something, you know, sort of how do you create a space where people feel like they're, they're, they're safe or as safe as they can be. Um, and that they're not going to be surprised by something. Um, so that's another piece of what I teach, um, as well. That's amazing. I'm, I mean, those, the statistics that you're sharing, you know, are just heart wrenching. And I'm wondering, and maybe, maybe there isn't a known answer to this question. What, what steps can we take as a society to help combat that? What, what is currently being done to try to address that? Like what, how do, how do we fix that? (laughs) Well, first of all, I think it's really important to say that the reason that there's abuse is that people are abusing, you know, and that the only way for it to stop is for them to stop, right? Um, I think one way that people are trying to manage this is they are doing more background checks on people who are going to be working with people with disabilities. And then, you know, we can also teach people what sexual abuse is and how do you speak up? And what do you do if someone doesn't believe you? Um, the people that are most at risk are oftentimes people with severe dis- developmental disabilities, rely on someone to k- do a lot of their care, and may not be able to speak up, may not be verbal. And they're really at risk, right? Um, but I think, the, you know, the more we can teach what it is and that you it's your body and you get to decide what's right for you, um, and it's okay to say no and get out of there. And, um, but I, you know, yeah. Uh, I'm wondering if you would be willing to share a little bit about your own disability journey with us. Um, and, and with that, how that plays in to the job that you do every day now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think just I'll do the job part. I think one thing, cause I use a wheelchair. So I think that when I'm teaching, I have, um, you know, people with developmental disabilities feel like I understand them on some level, you know, even though it's not the same disability, but I'm part of this club, right. And they're part of the club and we're all part of the club. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that gives me some credibility and people have said, um, you know, you really understand what I'm going through or, you know, so I can, so people feel like I can relate to them. So I think that's, that's really helpful. I also think that when I work with professionals um, and parents, it does give me some credibility as well, you know, around just disability culture, which a lot of people don't know a lot about disability culture. And um, I'm, so I'm oftentimes teaching people about the language you, you want to use and, you know, what's the sort of current thinking in the disability community. So I think that really helps in my work as well. Um, so I've got some credibility, I think, for that. And, um, yeah, I think, well, just sort of my own journey with disability, uh, as I mentioned, I was 26 and um, all of a sudden was using a wheelchair. And um, 
you know, I think as I'm sure you can imagine, it was really hard in the beginning. Um, and now, you know, I, like I'll say to people, I rarely think about it, but I think it's been so interesting just how I'm treated and how I have two, well, I, ha I have two kids who are in their twenties and I had them after, you know, I had them as a woman in a wheelchair and just some of the things, you know, that people said along the way are, are, are amazing. I mean, not, not in a positive way, but you know, when I, w I had a baby, the nurse, one of the nurses said, have you thought about how you're going to take care of it? You know, and I just, I felt like a teen mom, you know, like just this assumption that I couldn't take care of this child. Um, or people ask, like, was I in a wheelchair because of the pregnancy versus like being in a wheelchair and deciding to have a baby? And, you know, so just those, just the assumption was that a, dis a person with a disability doesn't decide to have a baby and, you know, do it the regular way too. Um, so a lot of those messages I think I got, um, and I think some of the other ones, uh, and I don't, you may have had an experience like this as well, but this, I remember getting out of my car and I take my chair apart and put all the wheels on and everything. And someone was getting out of their car and she had a big leg brace on. It was like a temporary thing, you know, that she was struggling with. And she said to me, I was feeling sorry for myself until I saw you. <laughs> No. <laughs> right. And I said, what? I'm fine. What are you doing? You know, so this idea that my life is so awful, you know, um, I feel like there's a lot of that. Um, and a lot of like, you're a hero as well. Like, oh, you know, you're amazing. And I just feel like we're all heroes or none of us are heroes, you know, like, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, yep. So I think, and also just like questions. And I don't know if the two of you get questions, but really personal questions, like what happened to you? Like that's like, that's personal. And I don't think there's sort of no boundary with people with disabilities, you know, sort of like the pregnant woman that touched their belly, right? You'd never touch anyone else's belly. And um, so that's always surprising to me when people say, what happened to you? Um, like, I'm going to dig up all this, you know, these past things and tell a stranger. No. I would say these are the exact, like, moments and encounters that I feel like, even in talking about the work that you do, but, like, in our daily life, we, we have to have those tiny moments to learn how to advocate for ourselves. And, no, I don't want my teacher told me to move my name tag, but I want to keep it here, so I'm going to speak up for myself. You know, you have to be be ready in those moments and but also so many of those microaggression moments that is constantly the world telling us how we think we should be seen right because the rest of the world is seeing us in that way so um it, it yeah it really does I, I feel like especially in the work that that you're doing it gives you such an advantage because you're right it's not always exactly the same thing um, it being intellectual disabilities, which comes you, with a different, um, a different kind of Rolodex of, of barriers, but still that idea of stigma and that idea of just like ridiculous questions coming at you 
you don't just get it, you get it. Um, And I think that's so, so valuable for you to have in your toolbox. And I'm so glad that you can bring that into the trainings that you have. Um, Because you do have the compassion and empathy that goes along with it. That, that wasn't a question. That was a comment. We want to be respectful of your time. So is there yeah. anything that you uh, feel like you haven't had a chance to speak to or about that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think we covered a lot of it. But I, I mean, I think one of the things that I'm always sort of making sure comes to the comes to the top is, you know, lots of times people will think that all the work I could do is with professionals. But you know, people, people with developmental disabilities are learning how to be sexuality educators as well. And I'm working in, a, in Michigan, and we've got all these teams trained to teach sexuality. So, I mean, that whole idea of someone with a developmental disability being one of the teachers, and what does that do for you as a person in the class, you know? Um, and I just, I'm always trying to put self-advocates like my first, you know, I'll say I work with self-advocates, parents, and staff, because I feel like they're really the ones I want to reach, either with information about sexuality or with, like, you can be part of the solution, and you can be a teacher, and you're a leader, and yes. yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for giving us um, a whole chunk of your time here. You're welcome. Thank you both. Keep in touch. It's yes, to meet. have a good rest of your day. Yes. Thank you for spending part of your day with us. We want to give thanks to our network, Public House Media, for our intro beats to Jason Bards with Cybernetics. Our local art, we want to remember Patrice. You can find his work at normalpersons.com. Be sure to follow Disarming Disability on Facebook and Instagram. And lastly, be sure to check out our website, disarmingdisability.com, where you can find all 13 episodes of season one, links to resources, transcriptions, and discussion questions for each episode, And check out our blog where we feature amazing disability advocates. See you next week. Bye. Me, 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 but also you. The Pharaoh fast forwards his favorite foreign film, Powder Donut. Okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Oh man, that's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry, I'm gonna need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus, the Bulbous Walrus. The Name Your Price tool, only from Progressive. The owl and a foul of the comatose coxswain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates price and coverage match limited by state law.